Joel Selvin, who reviewed music for The Chronicle for more than three decades, is a best-selling author, and he sits down with us here in our studio. So my first question, because we're running a design studio, is you've been in all the venues everywhere. What's the coolest green room that you've seen here in San Francisco? Ooh, green room. Yeah. So um, my favorite venue, without question, is Bimbo's. Bimbo's 365 yeah. Club. That's an upstairs dressing room, and it's built for um, a show. So it's not like... Uh, there, there's a star dressing room, but it's very small. Right. And then there's a cast dressing room that right. has a huge set of um, counters and, and mirrors. Yes. You, you can have 15, 20 people in there because Bimbo's was built with a floor show in mind. Uh-huh. Uh, the upstairs thing sort of points off for that, but yeah. that, that's pretty great. There's been some awfully good parties up there. So uh, you said it's ready for a show too. Do you mean that it also has a small stage, like for private show? You mean or no, no? There was a. It's a. It's for a floor show. Oh, okay. So that they, they they had to have changing room for large number of people, not just uh-huh. a band. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, they had they had girls dancing in in you know bird cages on their heads and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And um, so and then what about favorite? That's your favorite venue too. What yeah, about? and and you know the the uh, here's strange. Uh, thing it's the, it's the last old-fashioned men's room in the nightlife scene where at bimbos. At bimbos yeah they have a, a, a men's room attendant the ice in the uh-huh. urinals you know yeah <laughs> i've been only one green w- women room. don't understand the, the phrase ice in the urinals urinal cake <laughs> <laughs> what do you think the ice in the urinal is for oh you, uh, you know it's we're all little boys uh, oh really. just to slow, yeah, it's just slow to down yeah I heard this bartender one time tell me on in a little dive bar that their ice was because it was a slow trickle all day and therefore prevented any like big bursts of water, which could get clogged up. So he had this theory. <laughs> that sounds like some plumbing that needs repair. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> so we've only been to one green room and it was at the Great American Music Hall, which I think is a gorgeous venue too, a little bit smaller than the, the down Fillmore. The backstage, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, there's there's funky downstairs, downstairs, funky rooms, good bathroom. Yeah, really good bathroom. uh, But uh, Uh, and the Fillmore uh, backstage is terrible. It's one crummy room. And uh, I have seen that one, too. Upstairs, upstairs in the corner. Um, The the, in the 80s, there's a rock club uh, um, called the Old Waldorf. Uh-huh. And uh, that guy had a really nice backstage, and it was really big, and it was it was comfortable. And 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 about a year into it, he he converted it into a nightclub. <laughs> it's like way too comfortable. I uh-huh. think that club's still there. It's the Punchline. Oh, okay. And that was the backstage. The Punchline mm. it was a comedy club, but uh, yeah, it was yeah. the backstage of the old Waldorf. I'm, I remember hanging out with the the Eagles and Roy Orbison back there once. Yeah. Like, you know, seemed like a very small room that night. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people packed in. Yeah. Uh, there were a fair number of people, but I mean, any, any room where Roy Orbison, the Eagles and Linda Ronstadt are, is going to seem small. Yeah. So let's see. I have a list of list of like things I can't, can't wait to ask. Um, here's another fun one. I think is what happened to Mr. Simon and Mr. Garfunkel? You must know. Uh, you know, uh, 
it's uh, the the uh, was it the last tour that they did, where they had Don and Phil Everly uh, as a special guest. Uh-huh. I just that, that just cracked me up. Um, I mean, the, the Don and Phil Everly are the archetypal fighting brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they broke up their act at one point on stage in front of sold out audience when Don bashed his guitar over uh, Phil's head. Oh, uh, and I remember a friend of mine doing a magazine article on them and, the, and he interviewed them separately and it came time for the photograph. Uh, the, the, they waited around outside one of Don's house and Phil came in his car Walked up, didn't even nod at the guy. Just sat down next to him. They took a few photographs and left. And they didn't ever say a word to each other. Uh-huh. Uh, and, I, and I remember talking to Phil Everly about it. He said, Phil Everly was a very gentle, sweet guy. And, you know, they, they had contract that didn't just call for separate dressing rooms. It called for separate stage entrances. Mm-hmm. They were going to meet at the mic that's pretty divisive. And he said, yeah, you know, you're up there singing nose to nose, and pretty soon he's breathing your air. Oh, man. So there you go. That's, you know, that's the, that's the, the Don and Phil story. I'd say that's the Paul and Artie story, too. Yeah. The whole duo thing is, is, is you know, either a marriage or hell. It's yeah. one or the other. Yeah. Uh, you know, Hall and Oates, uh-huh. I, I don't think they get along. Yeah. Yeah. I I only recently I I realized it wasn't hauling oats. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is terrible. Like my rock my rock knowledge is terrible. Um or a subpar. But here's a good question because not to not to say like, the people who are in college now aren't, you know, understanding where rock history comes from. And not to like kind of pile on the they don't know what it's like kind of discussion, but I learned started to learn about classic rock when I went to college. That was just my path. But where do you think music uh, people who appreciate music, where do you think along their like musician or their, their appreciation path, do they start falling in love with the old you know the the Hendrix, the Dylan, the Stones? I find this all very mysterious, but of course it has to do with a lot of the paucity of the current day culture. Uh, the fascination that, say, my daughter and, and her friends have with 40, 50-year-old music just astounds me. It would be as if when I was in high school, me and my buddies were grooving to Glenn Miller and Tex Beneke. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is no more Led Zeppelins. Mm-hmm. The, the, the Who, fresh out of stock. Mm-hmm. Bob Marley, don't got another one of those. I, I, I don't know what to say about this. These, these people who, they were just marching in the parade while I was standing there watching, turn out to have been archetypes mm-hmm. and uh, irreplaceable in their, um, in their own way. So uh, it's not that the, the younger generation doesn't have their own music. In fact, uh, as far as I can tell, they, they've really taken hold of the music in a way that uh, our generation didn't. And then it's, it's a hands-on deal. It's a it's a way of create uh, of, of communicating. It's it's peer uh, driven. It, it's sort of semi-professional. It goes back to like 19th century type of um, use of music, where it has a real communal, mm-hmm. familial purpose and isn't so commercial and isn't so. Mm. Um, uh, 
you know, a product. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, the, the classic rock, as you call it, and that that's always brings to mind the, the Coca-Cola marketing thing, you know, like uh, classic rock. Well, um, and and that means that there's this stuff they call the alternative rock, right? Right. Alt rock. Yes. Well, as far as I can tell, that's the only stuff they're making now. Uh-huh. They don't make the classic rock anymore. They just make alt rock uh, and hip hop. Um, but uh, the uh, other stuff's just gone. Uh, Do you think that you mentioned that people are more maybe? the community version of music is more alive. Do you think there are more music makers? Oh, yeah. Those, no. I mean, are they shaking a tambourine? Are they, like, playing the God, Every kid more? Kn- knows how to play guitar now. Really? Yeah, every, uh, and, and uh, I remember that started in the mid-'60s, right, with the folk music thing, but it just seems to be uh, commonplace in uh, the uh, youth of America today, especially in urban youth, that just everybody knows how to play guitar, and most people know how to play a few chords on the piano too. Uh-huh. So yeah, I feel like the music has become much more of a of a participatory. It's cool. You play music, don't you? I wouldn't call it that. You play instruments? No instruments, but well, you know, the, there's a band here. Who yeah, you guys so are I, getting I back together. In, I, I could tell you 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 had, had had ran across the rock bottom remainders that anomaly. I, I did do a, a bunch of gigs with um, a number of authors who were assembled as a, a, a sort of a gag uh, for a book oh, yeah, convention. Yeah, that's cool. And it was a gag that carried on a little bit further because we had Stephen King as our lead singer, and people were willing to actually pay money to go see us do stuff. That's fun. Yeah, he's great. And and so where were some of the notable and fun venues you got to play at? Were you here? So we did this book convention in Anaheim, and it was like a one-off deal, and everybody had a good time. And there were a bunch of people involved, including Stephen King, Dave Barry, Amy Tan, uh, Matt Groening of The Simpsons. Yeah, yeah. Lots of, uh, of interesting people. And everybody had a good time. And Steve King decided that we should do a tour. So we uh, put together a book deal and uh, agreed to collaborate on a book uh, and funded a three-week East Coast tour. We went on the road uh, from, like, Boston to Miami. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was all pretty memorable. Uh, It was kind of deranged. And the book's called The Rock Bottom Remembers Midlife Confidential. Uh, it's out there. I don't think it's one of Steve King's best-selling books, but it paid for our trip. Yeah. And then we've done a couple of gigs after that, uh, here and there. Uh, and of all things, uh, we, I guess is the sectarian deal. We were like the non-sectarian act, but mm-hmm. we played the gala dinner the night before the grand opening of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. Really? Yeah. And it was That's like N- Nils Lofgren sat in with us all night. You know, I kept looking over my shoulder, and there's Bruce Springsteen's lead guitarist. It's like a joke that you know I only got. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I'm like, nobody cared. Uh, you know, nobody was waiting to see me. So I, I went out and wandered around before the show out in the house, and I came back and I said, Steve King, uh, you know, hey, we doing Stand by Me tonight? And he says, Yeah. I says, Cool, because I saw Benny King out in the audience. He goes, oh, Selvin, thanks a pant load. Uh, yeah, we did that gig and then um, uh, got offered another one. And that's where sort of the wheels came off. 
uh, everybody started arguing about whether we should uh, uh, be doing this gig in, in Disney. And uh, some of us were a little uh, upset about Mitch Album uh, uh-huh. going back to work against the over the picket line in Detroit. And, uh-huh. you know, so it, uh, uh, they've had some gigs since then. But, you know, I, 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 I don't get on stage with newspaper union scabs. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> do you play the guitar sing what do mostly you do? it was a background uh, chorus a, a few dance steps and, and 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 a couple of lead vocals uh that were um mm, severely pitchy uh-huh but fun well yeah i mean rock and roll doesn't have to be on key it's a i mean it's a cor- or on, on time or on you know it's it's, it's how like it feel, it's how it feels not yeah. how it sounds but isn't that like how music um, you know the way I play music now. It's my wife hates it because it's the same four songs I've played since I was in third grade. Basically, well, you're probably getting good at it though. I'm being damn good at those <laughs> three, four songs. But it's like it literally isn't for anybody else listening. It's just me making music that gives me this just joy. And so, what is it about music? Do you think after covering it for so many? Oh yeah, it's, you know, it, it's like, a, what is it that just people love it? Well, it's a bliss. You're right. It's it's it's. Uh, I, I remember uh, heading out from backstage with Steve Miller, and he's got a guitar strapped on. He goes, "Hey man, you know how much fun it is to listen to music? Well, it's even more fun to play it." And off he goes to play yeah. music. And I, I thought, yeah, that's right. That's that's how you got to feel about this. Oh yeah, and that I mean, do you ever have you covered anybody and you don't have to name names, but you you're just like you could see it that they weren't feeling it. Like oh, it happens all the time. Steps and and there's a you know they ate something terrible for dinner and feel awful or 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 you have the personalities like like Van Morrison or Linda Ronstadt. Neither of them. Ever comfortable performing? Huh. Are they nervous? Are they? Oh, just just, just, just hell for them. You know, huh. there's just they have no personality for it. Mm-hmm. But that bliss that you're talking about, they can't get it any other way. Uh-huh. I mean, I remember uh, asking Linda about it, and, and uh, I said, you know, I've been watching you perform, you know, since we we're both kids, and you know, I've never seen you comfortable on stage. She says, Oh, I'd much rather rehearse. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. Yeah. And That's... Van, the same way. I just saw him what, uh, a few weeks ago. And it just always never fails to amaze me uh, why somebody would put themselves through that kind of experience. Uh, it's clearly not something he wants to do, not something he enjoys to do, but it's something he needs to do. And I don't mean that from, you know, he needs the money. He, mm-hmm. needs, he needs to be able to make music. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't ma- uh, make it to do it in the closet by yourself yeah, you it, have to have an audience that's kind of impressive though if it's not even your nature and you're still so driven to accomplish that you know euphoria if you know the, or the pleasure that's pretty impressive oh uh, it's definitely mixed feelings I'm, uh, I mean, they're pushing through it right He's, they press themselves through it they're, they're uncomfortable uh sometimes the uh, it, 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 it's 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 as if it's independent from the performance it's some kind of trauma that they're going through but it doesn't necessarily affect the performance I'm, i've mm-hmm. seen van morrison be great and be uncomfortable i've seen him be horrible and uncomfortable mm-hmm. uh i've never seen him comfortable mm-hmm. paint a picture for me when you're you know kind of covering these bands uh maybe 
you know, in the eighties or take a snapshot in the seventies? Do you sit backstage? Are you on side stage? Are you just up front? Do you like take it in from way back in the balcony to kind of really absorb the crowd? So working for the Chronicle, I quickly developed a certain set of obvious rules that you had to sort of abide by. And one was you need to be in the audience. And you oh, okay. need to be in the audience for the whole show. Right. Uh, you, you need to be there when it started, and you need to be there when it ended. Mm-hmm. Uh, going backstage and watching the show from backstage, you do not see the same show mm-hmm. that the performer is giving the audience. That's right. And that's what your review's got to be based on. So those were like the kind of standard uh, uh, parameters that I that sketched out for myself. And, my, and, and that makes sense to everybody. The readers wanted me, I knew the readers wanted me there too. And they, they were going to uh, uh, cry foul if I didn't stay for the whole show or, uh, you know, was down the hall, you, you know, having a drink. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can do that. They can go to the show and go down the hall when it gets boring. Mm-hmm. But their reviewer has to stay and watch the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I knew that. Uh, the seats were always pretty good. And uh, if it was up to me, if it was what they, the so-called festival seating, so festive festival seating, uh-huh. uh, I tended to be toward the back of the crowd, the edge of the crowd. Uh, I like to uh, be around the soundboard. Mm-hmm. Um, Funny soundboard's always like in the right place. It's always in Funny, a sweet huh? spot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a good place to groove. A good place to you do know, dancing. I've, n- I've never felt like that 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 necessity to press forward and be up to the stage. Yeah. It's always been enough to be in the same room as the music for me. Mm-hmm. You know, every so often something will happen that you know I'll, I'll want to see and I'll mm-hmm. go up and look closer. But really, you know, it's just about the feeling. It's just about being in the room. It's just about being part of the whole thing. You and I have about the same pair of glasses. I'm noticing. Um, I think sometimes I like to get up front because I can't see them. I'm like I want to like see the you know the hard. It's dark in there too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I want to see the torture that they're perhaps going through or the bliss that they're going through. I, would, I sometimes just want to see it, but I agree. It's so fun to just sitting at the front row in Lake Tahoe for a Frank Sinatra show, mm-hmm. and the opening act was this acrobatic dance troupe of, uh, of elders called the Step Brothers. And the Step Brothers go back to the 30s, but mm-hmm. this is like in the 70s, right? Mm-hmm. And they're kind of elderly, mm-hmm. and they've got one guy who's like, you know, younger than the original guys, and they do these, these acrobatic stunts, and they're smacking their heads on the stage, and in the front row, I can see the grimace... <laughs> that they immediately disguise with smiles, you know, smack, <laughs> grimace, smile. <laughs> it was torture. You want to talk about torture? Watching these old bastards beat oh, themselves man. up in dance routines. So it's like, oh, God, don't do it again. No, no, he did. <laughs> yeah, that's brutal. But Sinatra was great. He remembered these guys from the 30s, you know, and he uh-huh. had them on the show. <laughs> I bet there's great Google YouTube stuff on the Step Brothers. I'm going to go home and look. Yeah. <laughs> So Sinatra, that's rad. I'm, you know, I used to go to all the Sinatra shows, and I used to go to all the Elvis shows uh, uh-huh. up in Tahoe because, uh, as a member of the press, the, the 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 casinos were happy to host me. They'd give me a room, they'd give me a dinner, they'd give me a show, and um, the uh, Nevada showrooms 
in the old days were great. The 2,500 seats, banquet seating, beautiful yeah. sight lines, yeah. great staging, huge orchestra. Yeah, good uh, production. And like. so, yeah, I, I, I saw tons of Sinatra, tons of Elvis. Uh, you, you know, it's only a four-hour drive. I can go up there for the evening almost. Yeah. Let's <laughs> um, see. So, what about uh, you? Cover the Beatles? Did you look? At- Never saw the Beatles. Saw the, plenty of Stones. Uh, plenty of Dylan, um, a lot of the old guys. I, 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 I spent uh, two weeks uh, in 1969 just sticking as close as I could to Little Richard in Hollywood. Uh-huh. He was playing the Whiskey A Go-Go that week, and, and uh, uh, he was on a, one of his many comebacks, and, and, and that, was, that was unbelievable. That was like being with the Pope or something. Uh-huh. Uh, Chuck Berry, seen a lot of the, uh, that guy around, uh, up close and personal. Jerry Lee, seen up him up close and personal. Uh, what about a band like Deep Purple? That never ran across those guys. Uh, we? You know, Satriani, of course, played with him for a year or so. And he, he's one of our local heroes. We've, uh-huh. we've been knowing Joe a long time. Um, what about Prince? Did you ever see? He played so, no, a my, couple my years ago. Prince stayed the hell away from guys like me, you know, with notebooks and and, and uh, pencils. Ah. Uh, but he's a funny guy, and and I, I watched his uh, uh, emergence with great amusement. Um, his first gig in San Francisco was when the second album was out, uh, Dirty Mind. Okay, and he sold out a club on Broadway called The Stone. It was about 700 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, had uh, jockstrap and chaps on. Mm-hmm. And had everybody in the house singing head, head, till you cherry red. I'm like, what is going on here? Uh-huh. Uh, so that, that uh, followed, uh, was followed shortly by a period of time where I couldn't take the album off the turntable. That every time I'd bring another album up, and I'd see Dirty Mind on there. I'd look at the album in my hand. I'd go, no, Dirty Mind's better. Yeah. And so for about three months, I couldn't get another record on my turntable. I don't know that album. Ooh, when you were it. mine. I know what. When you were mine, huh. I used to. We used to wear all your clothes. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, no, that's 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 the one where it's like. I I used to uh, steal the the tape from my brother and sister. I guess um, Purple Rain. You know? Well, Purple Rain was like, you know, suddenly everybody knew about it because of the movie. But the 1999 album was the one. Uh-huh. That was the one where, like, everybody sort of, like, went, hey. And when I mean everybody, let me say Caucasian America was not really part of everybody. Mm-hmm. And he did three nights at the Oakland Coliseum Arena, uh, sold out. Mm-hmm. And there weren't too many white people there. Mm-hmm. He was, it was the brothers and sisters, and he was on fire that's the little red corvette yeah, yeah. world and uh i took this photographer uh steve ringman and we sat in the third row and uh ringman took nine rolls of film i think 36 exposures per each mm-hmm. and, and in those days you had to develop them so he, it was like a lot of work sure he took good ones post production but right. anyway somewhere in the like 10 minutes into this prince saw his camera uh-huh and he starts playing to Ringman's camera. Oh. I mean, he's looking right down the barrel of that lens into that shutter. Yeah. Uh, I've still got those photos sitting around uh, on my wall and everything. And then out comes Purple Rain, right? Now everybody knows he's 
teeny bopper hero. He's mm -hmm. all over the top 40 radio and everybody wants him. He sells out nine shows in advance at the Cow Palace. Nobody's ever done that. It's mm -hmm. just beyond belief. And Bill Graham, of course, is super happy to have nine sold out shows by mm -hmm. this guy. But what I hear backstage is that Prince won't talk to Bill Graham. Uh -huh. that Bill Graham goes into the dressing room where Prince is, and Prince has got a couple other guys, and he'll say, well, you know, Mr. Prince, uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm Mr. Graham, I'm the uh, promoter of the show, and I just want to see if you need anything. And, and Prince would turn to one of his guys and say, well, tell him oh, gosh. that I'm fine <laughs> and I don't need anything. Oh, man. And, and, this one, and, and Graham came out of the backstage just, his face was just wreathed in smiles, and he just couldn't believe this was going on, that this guy wouldn't actually talk to him, that he would communicate only through like, but third like two, parts. two steps away kind yeah, of Yeah, some guy, you know, <laughs> right? And, and, yeah. and Bill's telling me this, like, he thinks uh, uh, Prince is goofy, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, are you kidding, man? Do you know how hard they laughed when you left that room? <laughs> <laughs> you just, that's how clever I mean, or funny man, is? You know, they were, they, were, they were having you, dude, oh, for that's... breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's funnier. <laughs> that's great, dude. I wonder, when I saw him I, do I was, some show, he had this thing of wanting to play strange places in the Bay Area. I don't know what the deal was. I mean, like, there was some little nook and cranny at the Warfield that he liked to do cocaine. or I don't know what the thing was because he was like, show up at the Warfield three or four weeks in a row, sitting with the bangle, sitting with the time, sitting with this band. Huh. And, and when Prince sits in, he just takes over. He right. did, it's a Prince show. Right. And it could be a half hour. It could be 45 minutes. It could be an hour and a half. It's not going to be one song. Right. And this was going on. He was hanging out with Sheila E. up on Valencia Street at this club called Bejones, which was kind of a lesbian bar that had a Latin rock uh, uh, wrinkle going. And he was up there like all night playing for the gals. Uh, and then I saw him down in San Jose playing some like San Jose State Event Center, which was like a small student lounge kind of place, maybe mm -hmm. 1,000, 1,200 people. And being down in San Jose with his band, right, he's like thinking where he is, and he goes, man, you know, this is where Tower of Power comes from. And he did five Tower of Power songs in a row. I don't know. He knew them. The band knew them. I mean, because these aren't simple things. It was just like only so much oil in the ground. It's not yeah. like it so very hard to go or, you know, top hits. This is like, yeah. what the hell is he doing singing only so much oil in the ground? God damn. That guy was all music. He was amazing. Right. So amazing. When you were talking about Bill Graham and him having this kind of discussion around him, I was thinking about, you know, it's, I guess celebrity or high level acts, they have to kind of create some sort of provenance about them. They have to kind of create some, some amazing part of them that's kind of bigger than life. Um, in, the, in, the, in your story, he was actually just having a, a joke at them. But how much work do you, have you seen some artists kind of go to to try to lift themselves up, uh, lift themselves up through, uh, I guess, false actions? Does that make sense? Well, I mean, false action is a peculiar phrase, right? I mean, what action? I just made what, that up. No right action there. is false, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. If, you want, if you want truth, try action. Yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, in show business, people go to great lengths to do all kinds of silly things, um, whether it's, you know, having yourself 
paged at a restaurant or or whatever sort right. of dumb stuff. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, there's elements of this that may not be so artificial, and that's probably the word you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, it, when James Brown, uh, his world, there was no James. It was Mr. Brown. And everybody referred to him as Mr. Brown. Now, he never referred to you by your first name. He would return the compliment. Huh. But he operated on a level of uh, dignity and respect, and he required that sobriquet, Mr. Brown. Mm. I, I, I understand that. He was a rhythm and blues singer. Uh, he was subjected to the vagaries of uh, the worst end of show business mm-hmm. and the uh, most disrespect of mainstream society possible uh, and to create the sense of self that he wanted. He put those posts yeah. out there so that you could see it's Mr. Brown. Yeah. Right? We'll, we'll, we'll have full respect here. So I've seen a lot of that kind of stuff, and, and, and it's, not all, it's not all goofy. Mm-hmm. Some, some of it has real purpose behind it. That's a really great story. I mean, I, I, I just don't really know behind the curtain, so to speak, uh, like what works and, and what doesn't. And it sounds like a lot of the, um, I guess like you say, those posts do work. What about the relationships you've had? I, I was reading a little bit about, like you have to have a um, a relationship in order to create empathy to cover some of the artists, but then you've also got to be objective. You've got to be able to eat their food that and wine. The newspaper thing again. Yeah, that was always interesting because the, uh, the, the guys at the newspaper, they want you to be independent and tough and fair and, 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 and not be in, in, in the pocket of the people, but they also want you to have their home and phone number. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> I, I, I didn't have too much trouble with that. I, 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 mean, I had this job at the newspaper. It got me access to these people. I, w- I was never fooled about why I was there. I, didn't, I wasn't there because of my charm or lack thereof. I was there because I had a job in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And uh, if everybody acted all groovy and, and, and cool about that, that uh, I didn't change my mind. I knew why I was there. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole great story about being in England with this uh, band, uh, was the Greg Kinn band. They were quite popular in San Francisco at that point. And they just bombed at this English festival. It was just like, you know, can we get these guys off here? And, and, and uh, oh. so I, 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 I had a great newspaper article, you know, Local Boy Fails. I think that's the exact headline. And, um, oh, man, he was so furious and he was screaming at me. And, and, and I'll never forget, he said, I already told my wife everything went great. Oh, shit. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, but you know, you didn't invite me because I, I was your buddy. You invited yeah. me because you might get your name in the newspaper. And guess what? You did. You did. <laughs> but then how did that guy go forward after that? Was it, was it a... A uh, you know, burying was, blow, or was no, it, no, or it just you know. Listen, it's a newspaper article. Yeah. You know, Bill Graham was always very difficult. Bill Graham was a kind of a bully, intimidating kind of guy, and and if you worked in the newspaper, uh, you were the gateway to a lot of promotion and publicity, and and he, and he that that meant that was a significant factor in his business. So, yeah. you know, I was just there, uh, and. Um, 
you know, uh, I tried to explain to Bill over and over <laughs> that he was Al Davis. He was the owner of the Oakland Raiders, uh-huh. and I was the sports writer. And my job depended on my credibility with the sports fans. And I don't care about the owners. You are the guys making the money. I'm in the newspaper business, different business. My job is to communicate with my readers. And they're the fans. You're the owner. You're Al Davis. And Bill never understood that. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, but he didn't understand a lot. He didn't understand that I didn't write the headlines. He would call up screaming at me before he'd read the article. He just read the headline. I go, no, no, Bill, read past the headline. You know? mm. <laughs> mm. And so he, he passed away in, in, a, in a helicopter or a plane crash, right? <laughs> yeah, a helicopter. How many years ago was that? It was 1991. It was getting to be a while ago. Yeah. And no one's filled his shoes, you know, in that kind of capacity, right, in San Francisco? Oh, no, absolutely not. Why was he so great? Well, uh, Bill was a very huge presence in the culture, in the business. He had a tremendous ego, and it wasn't enough for him just to make money. He had to be the best. He had to be the most prominent. He had to be the, the showman. So... Uh, it was always a drama with Bill, and he was always pushing things forward. It made San Francisco an exciting place to be because once, twice, three, four times a year, he'd do something that nobody else would do, and, and, and we'd be all the beneficiaries of it. That uh-huh. said, he was also a super hypocritical, two-faced, self-serving guy uh, who I had a lot of difficulty with and, and, and didn't think of as a great person in any way. I thought him as small-minded and petty and vindictive and, and uh, uh, you know, bully. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas somebody like Tom Donahue, <coughs> I had nothing but respect for. And Tom Donahue is another person who's never been replaced. And he died at, like, I think he was about 48 years old. I'm thinking it would be about 1976. And, and radio in this town has never been the same. It's just been crap. Uh, just like since Bill, there's no real producers. Perloff does a, a, a job, uh, another Planet Productions, mm-hmm. but he doesn't have the showmanship flair that, that Bill does. He's the one that's brought outside lands into Golden Gate Park mm-hmm. and revitalized the Greek theater and opened up the Fox Oakland. So he's done, and, and, and fixed up the, the San Francisco Civic, which is now called the Bill Graham Civic. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I was in there last year and I thought, man, you guys are crazy. It's not fixed up. It's still a barn. Mm-hmm. You know, as long as they like it, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have to do this anymore. You know, I was like, you know, 36 years. I, I was in the newspaper business and, and, and had to go to all these shows and, and, and be on the scene and, and, and like be like the baseball writer. Go, go to spring yeah, training, yeah. watch the rookies work out, hope the team makes it into the playoffs and, and cover them all the way to the World Series. Um, God, I, I rarely go to shows anymore. Yeah. Uh, and uh, all the... the Peregrinations and, and, and machinations that the, the concert business has gone through, what Live Nation and, and, and mm. Golden Voice and Another Planet and their new uh, venues and stuff. I mean, it's just, it's, I read about it in the newspaper like everybody else now. And I don't think they do as good a job as covering that stuff as we used to, though. Yeah, that's right. I would, though. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. What about some of the bands that you saw maybe that were, you know, 
they maybe hit some road bumps. You thought, oh, these guys are going to go and they're going to blow up. And, and then for whatever reason, they kind of had a couple missteps and they weren't able to push through and maybe have a drive. Do you, can you recall any stories like that? Oh, there's so, you know, the business is full of uh, self-destructive, self-defeating people that, that take uh, and, and snatch victory from the jaws of defeat or mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> right and left. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, you see uh, a lot of incredible personalities because the music, I mean, that is a factor of personality, Right. And so you get these guys that, 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 that make these songs up. They're not wholly invented. Mm-hmm. They're coming from sort of unbalanced places. And that's why the perspectives are unique. Uh, so, yeah, these guys are, uh, can often be a lot of trouble if they're any good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, you know, who, who self-immolated on the way up that, you know, uh, that, 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 that I can think of uh, from around here? I mean, it's just, you know, I'd have to go through my, my, my file of, of the also-rans and wannabes. Uh-huh. Uh, There's so many that had good tapes, had good songs, had good bands, had good acts, and just couldn't pull it off. And like, you know, Clover was a, a fantastic band from the 60s. And they, they, they moved up in, in, in the 70s. They, they decided, we're going to get serious about this. We're going to, we're going to, become a new wave rock band they go to england where they're, they're sort of appreciated mm-hmm. there's this legendary san francisco band they back this singer songwriter named elvis costello on his first album and uh-huh. you know they, i remember them coming back and you know instead of being Rin county hippies now they were carnaby street hipsters and you know it's mm-hmm. all you know mm-hmm. pretty cute didn't work uh-huh. So, you know, they broke up and, and a couple of them started a band called Huey Lewis and the News. <laughs> that one worked out. Uh, the Sons of Champlin were, were forever thing. I mean, they, I think they spent 13, 14 years slugging it out on, on, on the San Francisco scene. And they were always great. There, there was no question about the talent or the sound or the vision. They, they, they were just phenomenal. Uh, but they couldn't get out of their own way and they were a bunch of total resolute hippies that a wouldn't put their names on a record b wouldn't even agree to having a songwriter they had like some all, all the songs were written by some pseudonym uh-huh. i mean they were uh, they were abstract hippies they made the grateful dead look like bankers uh and at the end they were like doing a parody of, of this they were doing like lounge act parody to see if they could get get arrested you know right like champlin be playing georgia on the organ, Georgia, thank you. You know, like all this stuff, and it does nothing. So they broke up finally. Champlin goes to Los Angeles to work in uh, recording sessions. He wins a Grammy as a songwriter the first year for Turn Your uh, Love Around by George Benson, and then uh, wins a Grammy the second year for um, songwriting uh, Earth, Wind, and Finer after Love is Gone. And the next year, he joined Chicago as the uh, lead singer and, and, and stayed with him for like 25 years. And I was like, okay, I guess so. And the Suns, yeah. I see Terry around. Still yeah. the greatest guitarist, you know, in the business, but yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> do, you, do you ever go to baseball games? I have you, been you, to baseball games. Okay. As, as Steve Perry comes down and sings along to the, one of his songs, I'm forgetting right now. You're forgetting Don't Stop Believing? Yeah, right. Right? How, I wish I, I could. I know. Congratulations. Can we cut that part out? <laughs> Forgetting. <laughs> <laughs> but he comes down and 
and goes for it, uh, which is uh, which is always entertaining, you know, just getting people out there. I, I, the idea is Tim Ferriss turned into a baseball fan is so amusing to me. He's, What's that? Yeah, he's oh. he's just like the, the, this this girly girly guy. Uh-huh. I just the idea that he's a baseball fan sort of like really okay. <laughs> and and one question I always think I you just mentioned over on Rhode Island, but I always ask people. You know, what's their favorite room in their house, and then why? Well, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I wouldn't say that my record library is my favorite room because, you know, of the things that uh, happen in my bedroom are just much more <laughs> interesting to me. But uh, the uh, record library is uh, something I built in my house, and... I guess I, uh, you know, got tired of living with records everywhere and decided to put them somewhere and was able to, you know, make this you know, dark record library with rock and roll posters from the 50s on the walls. And, uh, yeah. And so uh, if you had, I mean, seemingly from everything I read and, and talking to you today, you have loved this, you know, occupation. If you could pick a different one, if you were, you know, 19 years old again, <laughs> what do you think? What do you think you might? Well, you know, select? look, it was. It, it, I, I was supposed to have gotten out of high school in June of 1967, and and you know, the, at at that point, there was nothing in the world as interesting to me as rock music. Yeah, and. I, I caught that wave and wrote it for, what, 30, 40 years. Uh, it was great. I can't, I can't imagine anything I would have rather done, uh, including something that made money. Uh-huh. But, uh, you know, I, 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 today, that's not the game. You know where I see that energy today is my, 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 my daughter is in the medical marijuana field. Uh-huh. And uh, so I spent some time hanging out with uh, her and her uh, uh, contemporaries. And, and, and they're in a game that's blowing up very much the same way rock music was blowing up in the 70s. Uh-huh. Game's on, party's happening, mm-hmm. but the future is just welling up in front of them. And, and not quite written yet. No, not quite written at all. But everybody knows that it's just big times are up ahead. Mm-hmm. It's super exciting. And, and I get that sense there. From those people, uh, since I left the paper, I've had the opportunity to work in uh, with Broadway musicals uh, and with documentary films, mm-hmm. and uh, those are the very exciting fields. I, I, I love what people uh, are like working in there. They excited, thrilled, having a great time. I mean, uh, there's nothing like the life of a young actor or actress in, in, in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there a couple of years ago where uh, they were making a musical out of a book that I was involved in and mm-hmm. uh, spending a lot of time with those people. They're in their 30s. Uh, the, the, it's just, I can't imagine anybody's having any more fun than those people are. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we all have our blisses, Jeff, you know. I mean, the design business is, a, is one that people get into for bliss, 
Mm-hmm. It's not Definitely, one, you know, yeah. I think I'm going to make a lot of money and I get into the design world. Right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's definitely not the way to do it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I did have that job where I was convinced. Yeah, this is That was it. the best job in the world. It's you know? killer. You know? Dude, it's the killer. The rest of you people are just, you know, not as lucky as I am. I mean, truly. That's how I saw it. I didn't want to be president. Yeah. I didn't want to be a lawyer. I didn't want to be doctor. Yeah, I, I wanted your... to be the guy sitting in the corner with the pad of paper and, and, and the pencil going to write it up for tomorrow's newspaper. And you also keep in mind that at that time, the newspaper was the king media. Sure. And, and the only way people knew about this stuff was because they read what I wrote if they weren't there. Yeah. What, what about your, you ended up kind of leading the department and having other writers under you. But you, oh, also, yeah. you also started there in 1969, I read. And like, what were the, your other colleagues and contemporaries like i mean other people cover sport and they were from you know i you know or they covered finance i mean you 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 just sat there and you were just got back from the band uh the greatest performance ever the night before what was it like to sit next to different people or were all people were all the same at the paper well the newspaper business was very tolerant of uh aberrant behavior and uh, most of the guys in this in, in the newsroom uh were amused by the idea that we had one of me, that we had a guy. I mean, we have some guy that covers the horse races. Why shouldn't we have somebody that covers the uh, rock stuff too? You know, yeah. oh, that's cute. Uh, and I always thought of myself as sort of being like down around the yachting editor in terms of like newsroom stature. Uh-huh. Um, we had one of those too, Kimball Livingston. Yeah. Uh, and over the course of my employment there, as the music scene got to be more prominent and as the demographics of the newspaper readers grew and there were more and more rock fans right uh the, my work took on greater significance and, uh-huh. but you to, raised to, from the yacht to the where well you know somewhere in the point where they would actually assign photographers to cover shows that i went to uh-huh. uh it, it was a couple years before one of my articles appeared um with any kind of photograph uh they used to squeeze it in the corner over between the edge of the adult theater ads and the side of the paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, as the eighties came around and the rock scene became so prominent and there's so much going on. Well, you know, it, it started getting uh, big displays, front page box, reefer boxes, they call them. It's not as much fun as it sounds. Yeah. refer to. Got you. <laughs> uh, see inside, you know. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know that it, I took myself any more seriously or less seriously because of that, but the, the newspaper people started realizing that there was an interest in the re- newspaper reading public in this topic, and I might even be selling a couple of newspapers. Uh, so... Yeah, it was interesting to watch that whole thing come along. And, of course, when I first went to work there, those guys from the old movies were still in the front room. You, you know, guys from the 30s w- were still working at the newspaper. And, and, man, they were fantastic to be part mm-hmm. of that scene. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and they looked upon me as, like, a, you know, a, a, a cute young cub that was like <laughs> off in you know his own little real yeah. weird world 
but his cousin Joel. Yeah, yeah. And, and and but there were guys there like George Draper who had fought in the Spanish Civil War, or Jeez. Herb Cain who everybody in this town knew, yeah. uh, or Tom Albright, the beatnik art critic that uh, wore uh, pork pie hats and, and and mutton chops and 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 you know smoked a couple packs of Pall Malls a day. <laughs> Uh, or Al Frankenstein, the art critic. Oh God, he was fantastic. Uh, I mean, the the panorama of characters that were in the newspaper business when I started out it just it was like a pirate ship with most everybody having had more than their share of grog. Yeah. Well, that's a Paul Avery. Paul Avery. Yeah. That's the, uh, Robert Downey played him in the Zodiac movie. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, Robert Downey doesn't know who Paul Avery was. And he doesn't, you know, he's not even close to, you know, he'd need a ladder to kiss Paul Avery's ass. Oh, boy. Uh, a- Avery was the most extraordinary uh, swashbuckling guy. He, he had the SLA story, the Patty Hearst th- thing. He had, he had the, um, uh, uh, you know, if it was bloody he, and, and uh, underground, uh, you know, the Jones the Dahmer, guys. Right. Yeah, he was, he was that guy. Yeah. And, and he would just make stuff up and put it in the paper God. so that it, his uh, uh, sources would call him up the next day and go, that's all, you got it all wrong, you know? <laughs> He's like, well, we'll correct it. And then we can, that's we right. Can, no, we can they, he, was, he was just driving them crazy. You know? <laughs> Avery was fantastic. That's um, brilliant. Um, well, listen, we tried to have a pod snack, and this has been a whole meal. Huh. I really appreciate you uh, giving us a window, like a, a real window into this, like, this work and the paper and everything. Well, you guys are hilarious. I hope you know you enjoy this and, and it's been fun to be here. And yeah. I, I love the room. I love the place. Thank you. 